You're listening to Talking Rugby with me, Matt Burke. My guest today is a World Cup winning captain. He's met the Queen and even managed to find himself in a compromised position in front of a British Prime Minister. And that came from Gordon Bray, by the way. So, uh, of course, I am talking about the Wallabies legend, Nick Farr-Jones. G'day, Nick. Perky, how are you, mate? I'm well, I'm well. Um, we'll get to that one perhaps a little bit down the track, if that's OK. No problem. But uh, let's go back to where it all started, the, the, the Nick Farr-Jones story. And you're at Newington, uh, and similar to Phil Kearns, no first 15 on the repertoire there back in the day. Was it, was it be all and end all for you at that stage there? Oh, Berkey, look, I, I grew up in the Shire, and, and Kearns was just across the Tom Uglies Bridge at Blakehurst. Um, my life was just running into my two brothers un, you know, under the hill's hoist, just always outside, always playing competitive sport, always... Um, you know, getting stuck into things. It just wasn't rugby, wasn't a part of the equation. For me in the winter, it was soccer, um, it was swimming, it was surfing, it was golf, it was tennis, it was any derivative in the backyard. You put up your best golf ball as a prize uh, <laughs> against your two brothers, but it taught you competition. It taught you to be aggressive and, and you know, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. Uh, my folks put a straw hat on my head at the age of 13, put me on a train, sent me to school at Stanmore. Um, I still remember turning up at first training session um, in winter and saying to my, my first rugby coach, a lovely man called Clive Woosnam who passed away last year, I was privileged to do a eulogy for him, a wonderful Welsh passionate man, you know, in the Welsh Sydney choir, but loved his rugby being a Welshman. Um, I still remember turning up at the first training session and said, Mr Woosnam, where are the round balls? And he said, we don't play with them here as they didn't back then at Newington. Um, I said, is there a position for him? And he said, easy, you're the littlest kid, here's a nine jersey. That's it. Yeah, and I remember Berkey seeing still studs for the first time and saying, Mr. Woosden, what happens if someone treads on you with those? <laughs> 20 tests against the All Blacks later, mate, we quickly find out. It'll work out. Um, but look, I, I loved all sport. Um, I, I worked hard because I was a swimmer and then when I was three hours on a train every day, I couldn't swim in the morning and afternoon. So I became a middle distance runner. Um, which was perfect, you know, when eventually you get a coach like Alan Jones who loves hard work because I was absolutely primed for it. You know, I was a fit bastard and I love sport. And yeah, look, there was a guy who was older than me. I captained the A's all the way through Newington, but there was a guy who le legitimately had the first 15 jersey. He's a good mate of mine. I think he went no further than seconds at Gordon, but um, back in 79, my leaving year, Newington won the premiership. And so I was just privilege to captain the bees or the seconds and sit on the sideline to watch and you know that that team win you mentioned all those sports about what you did in the backyard whether it was running around the, the clothesline uh, kicking a ball throwing it throwing a, a whatever is that lacking in in sport today in kids today oh, but growing yeah, up? i've got four kids i mean Ange and i are very fortunate to have you know jess 28 amy 26 um ben 23 josh 19 um, they've all got amazing qualities um, and, and different qualities. I, I, I still am amazed out of the same genes come these different kids and I know you've got, I think, four as well. Um, but one of the things that I, I, look, I feel I was the last of the lucky ones to play amateur rugby, but I feel that my generation was so fortunate that indelibly printed on my mind is the backyard at Gaimi mm -hmm. and, and being outside and doing that. And, and now, you know, the the gadgets and the devices that our kids spend two, three, four hours on a day um, drive us to drink, our generation, because they're missing so much. They're missing being outside, they're missing being at peace, they're missing sort of getting offline and, and relaxing and doing physical activity. And I think it's a major issue for our country, as we know. So Nick, you mentioned that word amateur. How, how was it back in, back in the day, compared to say what they are guys are doing now? 
it must have made you so much fun. Berg, it wasn't just fun. I, I just think, as I say, I do really believe, because I'm, I'm lucky enough to have had a, a tertiary education and, and had three good jobs. You know, one, one in law, one in investment banking, and now a third one in funds management. That's occupied me for um, 35 years as a, as a you know, professional worker. Um, and, and all great, interesting um, careers. But I say the last of the lucky ones because I had that chance to go to university. My grandfather was a, a terrific corporate lawyer. My, my, father, my, my godfather and my uncle was a, was a terrific barrister. I wanted to do law. Um, I loved Rumpole of the Bailey. So I had the great opportunity to study law at Sydney University, to play rugby at Sydney University. To, to, you know, people often say, what did you do after rugby? Well, I say I did exactly what I did when I was playing rugby. I got up on Monday morning, I put on a suit and I went to Bly Street to the legal firm. Um, but not only that, I, I love the fact that the 63 tests I got to pull on that gold jersey, I played one night game. Why, why is that important? Uh, I lived in France for four years when I joined Société Générale, a French investment bank. They have a great expression called le troisième mi-temps. It, it translates to the third half. To me, rugby was about the third half. Yes, the first and second half, when you pull on that jersey, you have the privilege. It is desperately important because you want to represent your nation well. You want to represent your teammates and your family and your, you know, your friendship, your, your mateship well. But the third half was so special. And typically, as you would know, because you were coming into the team when I was leaving, so you would have experienced a little bit of three o'clock kickoff. You know, you're pulling beers out of the, the, the esky at five o'clock and you're having an after-match function. You get to know, meet the opposition. Um, you know, what else was, was important was about the long tours, my first tour. You know, you've got to remember, I watched my first test match a year before I played one. Um, so 1983, I saw my first test match at the Sydney Cricket Ground, Australia versus Argentina. The next year I won, you know, going to Fiji as a Wallaby, then going on the Grand Slam tour. Grand Slam tour was not just four and five weeks going to major cities, dog barks, caravan moves on, you play your test matches they do now, you go from London to Edinburgh to Dublin to Cardiff, maybe to Paris. 10 weeks, 18 matches. Um, you know, we have interesting expressions, which I won't probably share with your listeners, uh, about rugby touring, but how good it was. And I got to experience that. You, you can't do that now. I mean, we only probably average seven or eight tests a year, as opposed to now 14 or 15 to get the, the income that's required. But, but for all those reasons, Berkey, I just feel that, you know, I, I just enjoyed the best of, of both worlds. I mean, rugby was an adjunct to my life. Um, but a magnificent adjunct that gave me the passport to the world and so much, so much mateship. Now you mentioned about touring and, and how much fun it was. I believe there was a card game at the back of the bus that uh, that you used to rally the troops in. Oh mate, I, I <laughs> look, we, we did a lot of things. I mean, I, I wasn't a back of the bus guy. I was only a scrum half, so I was a middle of the bus guy. <laughs> but occasionally you'd, you'd go up there. But look, I, I enjoyed cards. I think '89. Sorry. So what was the? Yeah, it was no, no 19. 89, it was. We went to France. Um, and, and Fitzsimons was on that tour, and so he used to like to always try and dominate and you know, give his mind you know, sort of strength and, and what have you to that, that game. But it was always good because, as you know, I mean, yes, it was amateur, but you got your weekly allowance, and as soon as the weekly allowance came out, it was always good to take it off other guys. That's exactly right. <laughs> well, I think we used to play... Uh uh, when we used to get the weekly allowance, we used to stick up the envelope and say, who wants to go me? And it was basically <laughs> just split the deck. And if you win the, if, you, if it's ace high, you take their money. It wasn't and, a lot of money. It was, it was like 20 pounds or something, wasn't it? <laughs> something That's like that. Uh, but you saved it up. Uh, now, you, you, you went on to Sydney University after, after school level. Um, was it, 
was it a part of your your nature to to be I suppose what you're talking about the word now an influencer to be able to direct people guide people because I remember playing you once it was it was my early game of Eastwood you were playing for university and and as you mentioned the, the third half we went upstairs we had a post match we thanked the referees we thanked this and our and our and our captain said to Bernie Carberry, who was the referee, he said, oh, by the way, his name's Nick, not Sir. And I thought, that is so good. But that classic... I think that was Scotty Reed. It was too. It was Scott Reed. His yeah. name's Nick, not Sir. I saw him the other day as well. Um, that was part of your job at, at, at being at nine. Berkey, very look much at so. number nine it was, and you had to try and work out when to, you know, speak and when not to, and you had to be very respectful. But, you know, part of your job as captain too is, um, is to make sure that, you know, you, you're not being dudded and that if you were concerned at all about you know any decisions that were happening you, you just made the referee clear that you just were a little unhappy. Any times when you felt that you didn't get the better of referees in, in the way through? Not, not really I, I, I'd, I'd like to think I was always respectful and, um, and I got on really well with referees um, you know I love talking with them I've, I've, when I was chair of the New South Wales board I used to love going to their annual function across at the Kirribilli Yacht Club I mean we all know that, that often referees, I mean, they're a crucial part. Uh, you know, without them, our game doesn't exist, and I don't think they get enough respect. So, look, I'd like to think I was, as a, as a player and as a captain, I was always extremely respectful of them, and I never did cross that line. I'm sure I probably did once or twice in that I was a, you know, probably too noisy. But, you know, I, I post-rugby and, and in a small, you know, sort of a, a board position I had, I, I, I loved going and supporting them and, and t telling them how damn important they were for our game. You mentioned 1984 and that Grand Slam tour. Alan Jones was, was captain. What are your memories of that, that tour? One being the four games, yes, tick the box of, mm. of the Grand Slam. The games in between, what did Alan Jones bring to the whole Oh, look, set, I think Berkey, he, in an amateur period, he took it professional. I mean, if you wanted to be in the Jones team, you had to work your butt off. And, and you know, and I love that. As I said, I, I had a swimming in a, a, a middle distance running background, so I couldn't get enough of that. Just the hard work, the discipline. The... At the same time, you know, you'd train in the morning, you'd go for your three, four, sometimes four and a half hours. Um, but, but for me, just soaking up all the culture of, of England, Ireland, Wales and Scotland and what we were doing on tour and the people, most importantly, that I was around. As a kid who came out of not playing for your first 15, having been playing second division for Sydney Uni in 1983, you know, to be passing balls to Mark Eller, you know, Gourley at the back, you know, Topo and, and Tommy up front, Bird at number eight, um, Hoyt and, and, and these are names that we still remember. And oh. then when, and when I got there, I'm still remembering these games. I played with, with obviously Steve Tynum at Eastwood back in the day, the, the big bird, and he was. He was the world's biggest human. Yeah, no, look, it was, for me as a young kid who really hadn't experienced the world and certainly, you know, had just been introduced to international rugby um, to be on some or in those stages and playing alongside those people but more importantly just experiencing life and and friendship and mateship and getting to you know not only admire people but for those people to become great friends it was it was a tour for the ages you mentioned mark eller uh, has anyone come close to being the player that he was in the time and uh, and you mentioned about passing to mark eller was that something special um, Berkey, you've got to remember I played about 50 tests with a guy called Michael Liner. True, that was the next question. Different players. Different players. Um, and different personalities. I, I was privileged, you know, to room with Mark Eller before my first test. Um, it is true that I said, Mark, 
I haven't played a lot with you because I, I only came into you know, representative rugby in Sydney, New South Wales in that year, 1984. So Mark and I had only played probably a handful of games together before my first test at Twickenham. And we were roomed together, and thank God for that, um, because, you know, Jonesy, the, the, the seriousness of Jones, and yet, you know, it was like Mark was going to the Bong Bong picnic races yeah. to Twickenham, and, and that was just such a great foil to me. But I did say to him, you know, Mark, where do you like the ball? I know that, you know, Hawker, you know, when we played at Sydney Uni, liked it on his hip, a bit like Noddy, a bit like Michael Liner. Some number 10s like to run onto it, they like it higher, they like it lower. My job is to get it where they want it. I said, Mark, where do you want it? Um, he said, Nick, you do the chucking, I'll do the catching. But Berkey, talking about the seriousness of Jones, I th he selected can, can, me. Can I, can I butt in there for yeah. a second? Because let's roll on 10 years, maybe a bit longer, and I first got into the New South Wales team and we did a 9.15 right-hand side and I remember this vividly. And I said, uh, <laughs> Nick, um, where, where should I run? And your response was, you run, I'll find you. So it, it, it continues, the, 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 the mentoring, learning continues. It's the job of the senior player to make the younger player feel comfortable. And, and, and Ilsey still, you know, I've heard him say it a number of times when we ran onto the final of the World Cup. That was his first year with the Wallabies. And he was, you know, shiting himself a bit and you know just was his mind was all over the place because of course we were playing England at Twickenham and he often I've heard him say it many times and I, it's the job of the senior player but hopefully it comes naturally um Ilsey said just before kickoff and we'd had 18 minutes from that knock on the door because I had to introduce the team to mom her majesty and Will Carling had to do the same and then anthems and what have you so 18 minutes from the knock on the Twickenham door until the game started and Ilsey said, Nick, you turned around, we, we caught eyes and you just smiled because that's exactly what we we're there to do. That's what the hard work had done. He said, you just relax me. But that's the job of the senior player to pass that on. But just going back to, you know, the, the seriousness and the, and the, the, the tradesman like, you know, qualities of Jones. He asked me on the Friday night before the Saturday test, my first test, can we have breakfast together? Just a one-on-one. -on -one. I think in his mind, he's thinking, geez, this is the kid who didn't play first 15. This is the kid who's playing second division, Sydney Uni that I've dragged into this team. We had breakfast and I'll never forget it. Um, he, he wanted to talk about my commitment, my focus, my commitment particularly to the team, however long I played you know, for Australia. And he always had an analogy and seriously, Berkey, he, you know, in the days of amateur rugby, you've got you got the bacon and eggs, but you got the, the you got the hash browns. You've got the black pudding the black in London. Pudding. You've got yep. the tomato, the sausages, and and I never forget. Jane said, Nick. Now, however long you play, I want you to be the bacon in the equation of the bacon and eggs. He said, the the pig is committed, <laughs> the chook, the eggs, just involved in the in the equation. So I remember, sort of, as a young twenty one year old. Jones has said, I've got to be the pig in the equation of the bacon and eggs. I went up to Mellor, Mark, in my room, you know, watching, you know, whatever the, the sports show was um, back then you know, on, on BBC. I said, Mellor, he wants me to be the pig in the, in, the, in the bacon and eggs process, you know, totally committed. And, and as I said, it was like, Nick, just forget it. Don't worry about that. I mean, don't worry about what he says. He was going to the bong bong picnic races and it was so good for me to room with Mark, to play alongside him, to know that I had this amazing guy who, whatever I threw at him, he was gonna catch and deliver. Yeah. Is, is, it, is it overcomplicated these days? Um, oh, look, mate, I, I have in, no doubt. In the way they play oh, the game? I, look, Berkey, I haven't been close to the playing of the game for a long, long time. If I was coaching 
the Waratahs or the Wallabies. I would not insist on a whole day every day. Um, as, as the super teams do, I would basically say, we turn up at nine, we're gonna get you out of here at 12 o'clock or maybe one o'clock. It would be a half day and then I want you to go out and do something productive, whatever it is, whether you're working with a non-for-profit, whether you, you, you're doing some study. I, I have no idea what these people do, but I loved turning up sharp, quick, effective, um, moving on. I, 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 I just, I don't get it. And, and uh, look, maybe I am that dinosaur, but um, look, I, I, I think they'd be far more productive. I, I think that to answer your question, I do think it's far too robotic these days because people are trained and this is what we do and this is what we do here and, and, and they, they're not spontaneous enough. I think again, when I think back to the amateur days, having a day job in the legal office, you're constantly making decisions. I think it gives you better judgment yeah. under pressure. And, and I would be challenging my players, if I was a coach, to do something productive with a half day of every day where they're constantly making decisions or, or putting themselves under pressure. Mm. Because I think in the heat of the moment on the playing field, they'll be able to make better decisions. I think that's not using eight iron or nine iron into a 120 metres from the pin. It's actually doing something productive. Exactly right. Absolutely. Righto, that's the half-time whistle. We'll take a quick break. Back in a sec. The Professor and the Hack. Accessible politics with just a touch of depth. I'm Hugh Rimmington. And I'm Peter Van Onselen. You can find us, The Professor and the Hack, wherever you find quality podcasts. Welcome back. Now my very special guest for this episode of the Talking Rugby podcast is World Cup winning captain, Wallabies legend, all-around nice guy, Nick Farr-Jones. Let me take you to that 91 World Cup. Uh, I was a young pup sitting at home watching it, watching it all unfold. Well, you're about to burst into the team. Well, yeah, I was trying my best. I was actually I was disappointed I didn't get a phone call. Well, uh, Marty Roebuck would have been that's just exactly above right. you at Eastwood. It was above me. Um, but you guys played, you got through your, uh, your pool matches, you won the most, well, thereabouts comfortable. You had a... a, a a muddy game against Western Samoa. I think it was about 9-3 in the That's end. That was my 50th test, Burke. 50th test match. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, in the mud. Yeah. Uh, and, mate, I, I, I buggered my ankle and knee um, in the first 15 minutes. I thought that was the end of my, my campaign. How, how's your headspace? Because I'm going to get on to the Irish game, and then you go down injured, uh, Noddy mate, takes I came, over. I came off Berkey, and, and I thought that's it. I mean, this was my last World Cup. Yep. I'd been a part of 87 and the disappointment of, of 87. And, and in the, the mud and the rain of, of Pontypool, yeah. playing my 50th test, yeah, got smashed and got caught in a bad position. And walking off the game, I, I thought, that's it. This is the end. I'm, I'm retiring. That's, that's, that's where, where my career goes. And Greg Craig, you know Craigie really well, one of the great physiotherapists, sports physiotherapists, literally within 10 minutes in the change room, he said, Nick, if you work with me for 15 hours a day, I can get you back for the quarterfinal. And we did. Yeah. Craigie was just a, a, a magician, and, and we worked our butts off. So the quarterfinal, um, the, the tackle, the try, the pass, you, whatever you want to call it, uh, you guys are just literally, with four minutes to go, you're on a plane home uh, until the Berkey, try. Berkey, that's when I decided, mate, because I only played 20 minutes of that game. Yeah. Again, I had my, my knee you know, in a late, well, I, I delivered a ball to Noddy after a line-out and got hit and got twisted and came off again. So I spent 60 minutes in the stand saying, when are we going to put these guys away? Yeah. And when Hamilton scored against the run of play, 
I promise you I decided I could never ever coach rugby at a high level because the anguish of not being able to do something on mm -hmm. the field mm -hmm. and watching on when you've worked your butt off um, for this 91 World Cup, I, I, it was unbearable. It was unbearable. I mean, when we won, guys came off the field and they saw me in tears. And like Kearns looked at me and said, what, what, what's wrong with you? Yeah, that's right. But when you're off the field, you get the emotion. When yeah. you're on the field, you've got a job to do. Yeah. You had but that's when I thought I could never coach this game because you're actually not in the middle. Yeah. You, you can't do anything about it apart from the preparation. That, that white line around the water for Waratahs at one stage, yeah, that white line. And all you want to do is do something. You want to belt someone, you want to do something. Absolutely. Not that I belted many people in my time, but that's okay. But you, 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 you left watching and that's that's the frustrating part going to that game against uh new zealand and people have called that you know the best game of football uh, ever the greatest half ever uh was that your uh was that your world cup at that stage did you actually have to readdress and reassess before you got to england yeah look new zealand just touching on that that was that was an amazing day it, it was that first half was one of the best halves we played, the first 20 minutes in attack, and we all remember Campo. Mm. It was the Campo um, show, wasn't it? Just it about. was, the, you know, the two tries. Interestingly, Berkey, you know, Bob Dwyer, you played under him. As a Randwick man, always, you know, trying to work out, creating space was what he was about, and so you got to run straight, and he'd say to the team, if anyone runs a cross field, Love it. they won't be in my team. Yeah. And, you know, Campo's now re relocated back to Australia from South Africa, and I've caught up with him a lot in, in recent times. And, and, and I really like Campo. I think my best job as a captain was managing Campo and getting the best out of him. I seriously <laughs> do, because you know how different he was. But, you know, he played for Ramwick and he played for New South Wales and he played for Australia under Bob. And Bob said, if anyone runs a cross field, they won't be in my team. And that first try came off his right wing. I had an acute ear for when Campo wanted the ball. He left me in absolutely no doubt. And he was running laterally across the field. So I hit him with a drift pass and he just continued to go past five or six All Blacks who thought the next guy outside him will get in the next guy, but perfectly across field as Bob had drilled out yeah. and scored the try. And then we all know that, you know, the history of the, the pass to Horan um, and, and Timmy's instinct to know that if you're gonna support Campo, you've gotta be in depth. You can't be lateral because he'll run away from you. So Timmy knew, even though he'd only played with him for a couple of years. But it was, it was an amazing game, Berkey. And, and, and let me just say that, um, you know, you, you typically have, a, you typically have a, a meeting at the hotel before you jump on the bus. You'd have backs and forwards and you'd have then a team meeting. And I would often speak at <clears throat> the team meeting, you know, as a captain. And, and then you jump on the bus and you go to the... I, I'll always remember, and I've, I haven't talked about this for a long, long while, but... There's a guy called Matt Laffin. I don't know if you remember Matt. Uh, he lived his life in a wheelchair effectively. He's a son of Dick, Dick Laffin. He was a huge, huge rugby fan. My eldest daughter was lucky enough to have him as a godfather. And he passed away at his natural age because of his disability, about the age of 38, so maybe 10 years ago. Matt was a huge supporter of the Wallabies. And he wrote, us, he wrote me a letter. And, and my only chat at the team meeting before we jumped on the bus was just to read Matt's letter to the team and, and, and what the team and the spirit of the team meant to him. And there was no more words needed. And we jumped on that bus with an absolute purpose that day. It was, it was amazing. And, and, and then what resulted um, 
in the 80 minutes was, was just fantastic. But you asked about regrouping and getting to London. Mm. Um, that was really important. And, you know, when you play, when you've got a lot of young guys, and you know we had a lot of young guys, you know, we had Jason, we had Tim, we had Eelsey, we had Willie, we had, uh, you know, Marty Dunney just been the team, um, Rob Edgerton, um, Kernsey, Daly, McKenzie. Um, when you get to your Everest, because you've been, you know, you're only young kids and rugby's everything in life at the time and you get to a World Cup final and you're playing England at their home ground, uh, the stars align. But as you know, Berkey, because you've played a lot of big, big matches, um, when you're playing a big match that means a lot to you, there's a real risk that you don't want to focus on it. Yeah. And, and for Bob Dwyer and I just talking about that, that was, that was something we were really concerned about that that the young guys would struggle because it's a big stage um, so we had to really focus on that and make sure that you know there was a balance between staying peaceful and calm but also that arousal level that needs to build slowly 12-6 the final score do you remember the game or do you remember do you remember walking up the stairs of the old Twickenham and actually getting handed the cup from Queen Elizabeth. Yeah, I remember a lot of it. I mean, the game went very quickly. Mm. Um, the game didn't go to plan um, for some reason. I mean, we had a great line out. Eels McCall, Timmy, uh, sorry, um, Coker at the back. Um, Willie O was a good jumper in the middle um, or towards the back. We, we got cleaned out by England by their forwards. At, you know, we only won about, the statistics were about 37% of possession. So at the end of the day, it had to be out of defence that stood up. And, and one of the things as I reflect on that, in the whole of the World Cup, we conceded three tries, um, two against Argentina, one against Ireland, um, none against the All Blacks, none against England. And so just the discipline that we had to, to defend um, was critical. Um, you know, you, you played a million tests for the Wallabies. When you pull on that jersey, you want to score five, six tries, you want to win in style, you want to have multi-phase play, interchange between forwards and backs. Doesn't happen like it that didn't sometimes. happen that, yeah. that way. Um, but at the end of the day, no one remembers how the game was won, they remember who won. Mm. And so, yeah, thank God. And look, I, I'm a huge admirer of the Queen and just watch the commitment and what she's done for the Commonwealth. And I've been lucky enough to meet her on a number of occasions, you know, when the team goes to the palace. But w when I was living in Paris, having joined um, the French bank, I, I got a strange invitation um, from the master of the household of the palace to come over and have lunch That's um, in 98. And so I jumped on the train, went over. Um, yeah, it was, it was fantastic. But to be given the trophy by her, I, I just thought it was extremely special, as did Ilse. Um, yes. Mind you, she seemed a bit happier in 91 than in That's 1999. Right. No, exactly right. Even though we just did the, the referendum. referendum got up. But... <laughs> Do you know that one of, the, one of the great images is 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 you walking up there and and you know there's a couple of shaking hands on the way oh, and it's there yeah. and there's there's one of the dignitaries and and, and, yeah. and they live the for guy that after moment. the Queen That's after right. Her Majesty. He stuck out his hand and oh, he just absolutely brushed him, brushed him. <laughs> and he just sort of went, oh, okay, that's it, and I was like, cup, pass on and, and go from there. Uh, yeah. Great no, moment. But, but it was it was interesting. Because I mean, I, it's it's look, you don't know how you get there and how you arrive to that situation, and and as you know, when you win Bledisloe's or what have you, it's it's more relief, isn't it? And, and I think it was just utter relief. I mean, you still try and work it out. The further you go from the event, the more you understand the significance it was for a nation. But look, I remember, you know, coming back and hearing that 
the then Premier Nick Griner wanted to put on a ticker tape parade up George Street. And, and I'm thinking, that's not going to work. You know, we yeah. don't do ticket tape parades. But you guys in... were hesitant about that. Oh, yes. look, I called him and said, look, sir, thank you for thinking about this. But, but my real concern was that we'd get 100 people, you know, from Circular Key to Town Hall. Yeah. Dave Brockoff, my parents, yeah, my, my in-laws, right. a few others yeah. turning up. But, but he said, look, look, we've, we've announced it, it's happening. And to, our, to my amazement, they reckon about 130,000 people turned up that day. When you're from a distance, yes, you get a lot of faxes in, in the days of the faxes. And, you know, we'd wake up in the morning before that English test and we'd get thousands overnight and we'd try and read a lot of them. I mean, we'd share them around before breakfast and going off to training. But, but from a distance, because I was part of the 87 World Cup where it, it didn't really work, you know. We played an amazing semi-final against France at the unloved inner western Concord, you know, ground of Concord Oval. I, I think 19,000 people turned up that day. And... Four years later, it, it's hard to understand that it wasn't only some bunch of people in Sydney and Brisbane, but people in Perth, Melbourne, yeah. Adelaide were getting was, up at two in the morning and you know. nationally based, wasn't mm. it? Everyone chased the Wallabies outfit. Uh, so yeah, I've got to I've got to go change room now. Change the old Twickenham change rooms, the baths, and the rest of it. It's just sponsors product and a chat and a few songs and the rest of it, and then the the British. PM came through. What's going on yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look, it was, it was great. I mean, you've been to the, the Twickenham changing room. It's the tradition. You know, it's the woodwork. It's, it's, I'm sure it's like Wimbledon and and you know and Wembley. Um, big enamel bars. You know, I was in the bath with Noddy. Um, we were drinking out of the, the Webb Ellis Trophy and um, and I got the tap on the shoulder. I think it was Timmy Gavin, um, the PMs, the British Prime Ministers here, John Major, and just wanted to congratulate you. So I jump out of the bath, and of course you're in the raw. Um, and Major always, you know, immaculately dressed. And um, and you know, in those afternoons off after training, I, I, I the Tory conference was on, and I'd put on the you know because I was interested in things politic in the in in the UK and and what have you. And so we ended up talking for about 10 minutes, you know, and he wanted to talk a little bit about the rugby or but his team had been beaten, but I wanted to talk about things politic. And, and the boys thought this was fantastic. And at our 20 year reunion, Berkey, a um, couple of photographs appeared and uh, <laughs> of us sort of talking, he in his three piece suit, the glasses fogging up with the, the steam of the changing room, me in the raw. Uh, I'm only very thankful back in 91, you know, nowadays we get our, our mobile phones, <laughs> you take a photo, right. you flick it around the world. Um, my only excuse would have been it was bloody cold on 2 November in London. <laughs> love it, love it. Uh, let's uh, just quickly jump uh, ahead and talk about New Zealand for a second. Uh, and we, we, you look at that, well, you guys had the last win in 1986 of New Zealand, Eden Park. Uh, why do you think it's become such a difficult play? And, and I contributed to the, the hoodoo as well. You know, we hadn't won there since you guys did it. Uh, are we getting further and further apart now in this, in this sort of divide between Australian and New Zealand football? It, it, it certainly would appear so, wouldn't it? I mean, on, on the way that the, the super teams are, are performing. And um, yeah, look, I, I, I can't work it out. But mind you, Maddie, I... I I suffered a lot at Eden Park when playing for New South Wales against that Auckland team that was you know, a fantastic team. It wasn't until we beat them at Concord Oval, I think in 87, four tries to, to something, but, but they were a phenomenal team. So yes, we had that success in 86. We were the best team in the world. There's, there's absolutely no doubt about that at that time. We should have put them to the sword in, in Dunedin. We should have won three tests to zero. 
on that 86 tour and, and it was a convincing win. I think it was 30-16 at Eden Park. <clears throat> but look, New, New Zealand are a wonderful team wherever they play and, and at their fortress, it's, it's damn difficult. My first test against the All Blacks, I sat on the bench in 84 for three tests, Sydney cricket round twice, Ballymore once. Um, we lost by one point in, in 84 in that final test. That was the first of four consecutive tests where one point separated us. Kiwis got on the right side of that 1.3 times, we got on the right side one time. But my first test was Eden Park, 85, we lost 10-9. Should never have lost that day as well. Um, look, I, I was criticised a couple of years ago for saying that my view that the current Wallabies are a little bit mentally soft, mentally weak. Um, I probably stand by that in that, and it's got nothing to do with the courage and, and the physicality of the guys. It's got everything to do with knowing how to win tight matches. And <clears throat> to do that, it's a journey and you have to understand that and you've got to understand what I call process as opposed to, you know, we, we had to, when I took over the captaincy and Bob picked me as captain, First two years were hugely inconsistent. You know, we, we, we had this series against the All Blacks in 89. Great first match, lousy next two. We had a, a series against um, the All Blacks, one great game, two lousy games. We had went to France, one great match and, and one terrible match. We had to work out how to become consistent. And, and it was a mental thing. It was about culture and introducing a culture to the team. And, and, and we called it getting the process right. And, and not being scoreboard focused, not being desperate to win. And, and I think that a lot of our professional players struggle with knowing how to close out games, how to win close games, how to pressure opposition. Um, I just don't think they think enough. I don't think they, in the heat of the moment, they, they're, they're making good judgments. And, and, and so I, I, I do think that the culture of Australian rugby is mentally weak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's something that we can definitely work on, isn't it? Yeah, quite incredible. Uh, just before we go, Nick, 1992, uh, the return of South Africa from apartheid. You were involved in that first game uh, down in Cape Town, in the mud of, of Cape Town. What was that like to experience that game and, and what it meant to sort of them opening up, coming back into world rugby again, having been you know, ostracised or put in, in the dark yeah. for so long? Yeah, look, it was interesting, Berkey. I mean, I, I, when I was a young kid, I, I thought that sport and politics shouldn't mix. Um, but I actually made a 180% turn on that when I experienced South Africa because I understood for the first time how the, the abhorrence of the apartheid regime, but also I understood the pressure it put on the political party at the time yeah. and particularly the white people about... Um, the world's view on the apartheid regime. Um, and so I did actually make a change because it did put a lot of pressure on de Klerk, the then president and his government, um, during that Glen Eagles agreement period when, when they were basically not just um, abandoned from sport but from you know, economics and there was the economic sanctions on the country and, and what have you. And, and, Look, it was an amazing period, Berkey, looking back on it. Um, 1990, Mandela was released. Um, so obviously, the, well, the ruling party um, was making 
utterances about going to a, a full democratic elections, which President de Klerk uh, eventually made in 92, but the African National Congress decided to support the opening up of first cricket and then rugby. Um, it was a very, very emotional time. I'll never forget, we, we played four matches culminating in the test at Cape Town. We started in Pretoria. Um, I mean, to just give you a feel for it, I'd been a couple of times, and I've been to South Africa now well over 100 times, you know, with, with my work in, in mining finance and what have you. Um, but back then, I didn't know a lot about the country. And, and you, you know, we turned up at Pretoria and going to our first training session, I sat next to the liaison officer because I'm captain. I want to thank the guy for being a part of it, showing us around. I said to the guy on the bus, you're trying to make conversation, so what's the population of Pretoria? He said, oh, it's about 400,000. I said, you're serious? It looks a lot bigger to me. He said, oh, it's a couple of million if you include the blacks. Yeah. And, and he said that as an innocent comment. And the number of white Afrikaners in Pretoria who came up to me, having recognised me as a captain of a World Cup winning team the year before, who came up to me and said words to the effect of, congratulations on winning what you perceive to be a World Cup, but until you beat us, you've won nothing because they weren't a part of the 91 World Cup. And so we were playing one test in a few weeks' time. And for me, knowing that I'm checking out a rugby pretty quickly, um, everything was at stake. Yeah. Our reputation as world champions. And so for me, very emotionally, that, that sort of got me up and um, I decided the week leading into the test, this was going to be it for me. I didn't tell the team. I remember going to the bus with your Eastwood teammate, sitting next to Marty Roebuck. We got to... We got to Newland Stadium and, well, actually, it was very emotional leading into that too, Berkey, because we went to the return of the Springboks against the All Blacks at Eden Park, uh, sorry, at Ellis Park in Johannesburg the week before we, went, we played our test. The African National Congress asked for three simple conditions to support the tour. The non-waving of the old Dutch flag, the observance of a minute's silence for victims of township violence, and a lot of that was happening around that time, and the non-playing of Destem, the old Dutch national anthem. So when they called for the observance of the minute silence, the whole crowd and Louis Late, who owned Ellis Park, put on Destem. So they breached these three conditions, unbelievably. I got woken at about 1am on the Monday morning in Port Elizabeth, um, coach, captain, president, chief executive of the Australian Rugby Union, had a meeting at 1am, just found out that the ANC decided to reconvene to consider withdrawing support. We had to wake our team on the Tuesday morning, say, guys, we're still going to training, but pack your bags. If the ANC withdraw their support, we have two planes waiting for us to fly us to Singapore. Um, so it was at that time I called my wife, um, you know, because it's back home, it's, it's midday. I said, Ange, I'll see you in a few days. We're not going to be able to play our test. So the whole emotional roller coaster to get to Newlands was quite amazing. And a wonderful guy who'd spent 26 years with Mandela in prison uh, on Robben Island, a guy called Steve Schwetti, who became the first sports minister. Um, when the ANC took government in 94, he said, give them one more chance. He actually became a good friend of mine in the late 90s. Um, we caught up quite a few times. So we got the chance to play. Fantastic. And I remember turning up then at Newlands, and you know what it's like, the privilege to play for your country. And I'd made the decision this was the last time. 
and just emotionally broke down as you turn up. Roebuck's next to me and, and, and he said, Nick, what's happened? What's going on? You've got to tell me. And I said, Marty, I'll, I'll tell you after the game, but everything's fine. Everything's fantastic. And, and then to, to win 26-3. Um, the way we won, the box had never been beaten in the history of Springbok rugby by 23 points. It was, it was fantastic a few days later to walk up the stairs of the Qantas flight leaving Johannesburg, basically turn around to those Afrikaners and say, shove that up your ass. <laughs> <laughs> Job done. Tick the box. Far, thank you so much for spending time with us on Social Rugby, mate. Brilliant. It's always good. Great to catch up. That's it for this episode, and thanks for spending part of your day with me. I'm Matt Burke, and you've been listening to 10 Speaks Rugby podcast, Talking Rugby. You've been listening to Talking Rugby with me, Matt Burke.